Father, our hearts thrill as we sing those words, as they sing of your meekness and your majesty, of your tenderness, of your love, of your infinite greatness. Father, will you speak to us now through your word? May we hear what you say, and may our hearts receive your word, and may we be enabled by your Holy Spirit to live it in our lives day by day, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Isn't life together difficult? I can remember quite a while ago now, over 40 years ago, and the memory's still strong in my mind, of a holiday we spent with some friends in North Wales. We'd met these friends, Tom and Dorothy, on holiday in the Lake District, and we got on really well, and we'd kept in touch. We were, had our first baby in the April, and they said to us, why don't you come and have a holiday with us? Bring the baby, we'll, you know, that would be lovely if you could come. And so we decided that would be a good idea, and we went. But it wasn't a good idea. Andrew, who at about five months, I think he was then, used to wake up every morning at five o'clock. Tom and Dorothy didn't get up until 10. I think at the first hour, I used to spend feeding and bathing him. And then I'd hand over to Ray, who'd walk the several miles to Colwyn Bay and back. And still, when we got back, he got back, they weren't up. And of course, it worked the other end of the day, too, because they were quite happy to stay and talk till well after midnight. Whereas we were sitting there thinking, oh, just five hours and we'll be up again. And you know, I always thought my husband was easy to feed. But somebody else preparing his meals, I realised just how fussy he was. I used to give him just what he liked, but she didn't. And do you know, we came to that end of that holiday totally exhausted and also deciding that in future we'd spend our holidays on our own in our own peculiar way and be happy. But you know, life together is difficult. It's difficult to get on with people, even people that we, I must say that we we stayed friends with them. We didn't lose our friendship over it and uh, I think actually we did risk another holiday with them when when Andrew was a little bit older. But it is difficult, isn't it, to get on with other people, even those we like, in close living conditions. You think of the tensions and the petty squabbling, the resentment, the hurtful gossip, the disagreements, the conflagration points in the communities within your experience and family. You do, we do find, don't we, that it is difficult. Living together with people who are different from us isn't easy. But think of them, and then let us turn to Christ to see how he wants us to live within them all and to give us a new spirit, his spirit. You see, Jesus Christ, right at the beginning of his ministry, took 12 men and moulded them into the first Christian community. And when we think of it, what a mixture they were. Few churches, I think, could boast such a variety of class and temperament and opinion. Fishermen, thinkers, a tax collector, a member of the zealots who were a subversive political party, 
and the ambitious worldly Judas. What a collection. Yet, in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus chose them after a night of prayer. These were the men that God wanted to help in his amazing plan. But have you ever thought how they must have got under one another's skin? Yet they were bound together by their common love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. They failed him time and time again. They were slow to learn. They were so self-willed and stubborn. And when the crunch came and Jesus was taken away to be crucified, they were cowardly and disloyal. They ran away. And yet, after the resurrection, in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were transformed into such a close, knit, loving community that they were able to convert men and women to the way of Jesus. How these Christians love one another, marveled their contemporaries and their opponents. It was a miracle, a miracle of a transformed and transforming community. Did you notice those so familiar words that Chris read at the, in her, this morning? And the one word that has shone out for me as I've meditated on this familiar passage is the word humility. Maybe this is what holds the key, the secret to our life together. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, Peter writes this, he says, be clothed in humility. And the interpreter's Bible makes this comment on the word. It says, the noun signifies an apron worn by slaves and regarded as a mark of their status. So here the verb means put on the apron of humility to serve one another. I'm sure that when Peter wrote those words, he was going back in his mind to the upper room the night Jesus was arrested, where Jesus, knowing that he'd come from God and was going to God, took upon himself the apron of humility to serve his friends. No wonder Peter could never forget that amazing scene. Isn't it incredible? The Lord, the one standing in the midst of history, the one who is going to change the course of human history, the one pers person able to bring man and God together through his sacrificial death, saviour, redeemer, reconciler, takes the towel, takes the basin, and washes his quarrelsome disciples dirty feet. We've just sung about it, haven't we? Meekness and majesty, the God of the universe, is love that stoops and serves. But I think we learn another truth about the humility that can transform our life together from that amazing story. Do you remember Peter? No, he said, no, you'll never wash my feet. I can't let you do it, Jesus. And Jesus replies, 
If I don't, you can't be my disciple. You see, Jesus makes it plain to Peter and to us that before we can do anything for him, there's something that he has to do for us. Without his cleansing forgiveness, we have nothing to offer. In our life together, we have to receive before we can give. Because God has been merciful to us, we learn to be merciful to others. Because we've been forgiven and not judged, we can forgive and not judge. The more that we receive his mercy, his forgiveness, his love, the more we're able to give forgiveness, love and mercy. And if our life together in the communities that we've been thinking about is poor in love and compassion, forgiveness and acceptance, it is because we haven't opened our hearts completely to these gifts of God to us. And you know, this seems to be bound up with the humility that Jesus encouraged. You see, God can only give his gifts to those who know that they're spiritually poor. And no wonder pride is the deadliest of sins because it asserts self against God. It blinds us to our needs. It stops God being able to help us because we don't feel that we need him. I wonder if you've ever read a book called I Jump Over the Wall by Monica Baldwin. Monica Baldwin was a nun for 28 years but she finally left the convent because she knew that she lacked the essential quality of humility that the discipline of the order required. But in no way did she lose her faith in God. And I can remember reading, that she, reading in a book about it that she spoke some years ago on the early morning Thought for the Day programme, and she said this about humility. What makes humility so desirable? is the marvelous thing that it does to us. It creates in us the capacity for the closest possible intimacy with God. Humility clears away the self-love and self-indulgence that stop God getting through to us. It's the supreme eradicator of self-seeking. It hallows out in us a vacuum and immediately this vacuum exists, God is able to pour himself into it. I love that. I think it describes so well what humility can do in us and what God can do through us. But how can we achieve that humility that will open our lives up to God's giving and transform our lives together? How can we cut self down to size? You see, humility is not only supernatural, but it's a completely elusive virtue. The minute you start to examine yourself for signs of humility, all hope of being humble, it vanishes. Because the essence of humility is self-effacement. The opposite of humility is self-obsession. It is as impossible to see humility in yourself as it is to look in a mirror 
and see yourself blinking. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. I haven't, but I can see that it's totally impossible. You see, God can only give his gifts to those who know they're spiritually poor. And that's why pride is the deadliest of sin, because it asserts self itself against God. It blinds us to our true needs. It stops God being able to help us because we don't feel we need him. Philip Brooks, who was an American saint, I think, of past ages, said this, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand against some higher nature. You see, humility will come, and this is, this is the secret of humility, humility will come when the gaze of our soul is upon our great God, who was seen so clearly in Jesus. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. Do you remember that book that was so popular when I was a young Christian, Your God is Too Small? I think he wrote another book, Your God is Still Too Small, and I think he could write another one today too. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to bring God down to our size. We scale God down to manageable proportions because that makes it easier for us to cope with him. But you know, such a God bears no resemblance to the sovereign God of heaven and earth who reveals himself in creation and history as the one God who sees, hears, and speaks, and who in the person of Jesus actually walked this earth, touching and feeling the pangs of human existence. When we live every moment of every day, in the awesome awareness of our great God who stands at the center of everything and at the center of our lives, then humility is born in our souls. In a minute we'll sing a hymn that speaks about him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. I don't know which part of our studies in Malachi that uh, has spoken most clearly to you, but for me, it was definitely those last two verses of chapter three, where he says, they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. This is Malachi chapter three, verses 17 and 18. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And then this is the verse that speaks to me most clearly. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. You know, I believe that humility will define us as Christians because it shows those who have self at the center of their lives and those who have Christ at the center. 
and there will be a difference that can be seen. It will make a difference to our lives to have Christ completely at the centre. We're his treasured possession. Those are lovely words, aren't they? I love those words. We're his treasured possession. He talks about that, you know, in, in Deuteronomy and chapter 7, where he says, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. I like that. I like to know I'm God's treasured possession. And the wonderful thing is he chooses to love us not because we're great or good and deserve his love and not because we're small and weak and need his love but because he chooses to think about us and care for us, whoever we are. Should we ever doubt his love, we only have to look at Jesus and supremely at his cross. And looking at Jesus, we don't just see how much he loves us, but we can also allow God to fill our minds with the remembrance of his steadfast love and faithfulness. And the will, and, and the wonderful thing about doing this, that all, as we do this, the all-elusive gift of humility when we gaze upon this, his love, his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his steadfast faithfulness, his greatness, then humility will be burnt in to the depth of our souls. I think some of you know I used to be a Methodist. I was a Methodist. I was born a Methodist, I suppose, and it's only really in the later years that I became a Baptist. Not that it makes any difference. I always like to say I'm a Christian. Those are just the titles. But Charles Wesley, I love Charles Wesley's hymns because I, I grew up with them. They were part of my childhood and my adolescence and my adulthood. And there's one, I, I've looked in all the Baptist books and I can't find it there, but it's the one I'd like to close. It's a, a hymn by Charles Wesley where he sums it up really. Lord, that I may learn of thee, give me true humility. Wean my soul and keep it low, willing thee alone to know. All that feasts my, let me cast myself aside. All that feeds my knowing pride, not to man, but God submit. Lay my reasonings at thy feet. Of my boasted wisdom spoiled, docile, helpless as a child, only seeing in thy light, only walking, in thy might. Then infuse the teaching grace, spirit of truth and righteousness, knowledge, love divine impart, life eternal to my heart. May that be our experience as we seek to live together and love one another and serve one another in his name. Amen.